turn, if you will, with me to John chapter 4. We are going to finish up John 4 this morning. And I'm here for tomorrow. We're going to look at the last story. So, Paul, would you mind passing these guys out? John 4, and we're going to be in John 4, verses 43 to 54, this last story that's sort of attached here to the end of um, this chapter. And last week we finished up the story of the woman at the well and Jesus' time in Samaria um, with, uh, with this woman. And we saw many of these people in Samaria came to Christ. They, they first came to him in response to the woman's testimony. They respond with faith. And then they come and hear Jesus firsthand. Uh, and they respond with a, with a deeper, more clear, accurate faith um, in him. So it says they believed him, and then they say we believe him on account of his word now. And we talked a little bit about how it's just a big theme in John of true versus false faith. And also true faith that begins in Christ rightly will persevere in his word. It will press on in his word. It will, it will drive one to know him clearer and better. And the more it's exposed to the words of Christ the more it perseveres in it. And uh, we saw just that with uh, the Samaritans. We saw that with the disciples earlier. And now we're going to see that same thing again in this last story with this official who comes to Jesus. John is very intentional how he's putting this material together. And um, we said um, many times that in these first four chapters, faith, believing, is mentioned in every single story. Um, it's very intentional on John's part. And, uh, and that's what we're going to look at a bit more this morning. Um, so he's just finished in Samaria, and now he's going to head back to Galilee. It was his original destination at the beginning of this chapter, and uh, he's spent two days here in Samaria. Now he's going to head back up north to Galilee, and uh, we're going to see something very interesting there. Um, it's actually quite shocking what, what takes place. Uh, he's just been received by Samaritans. Um, in big numbers, they come to him. And now he goes up to Galilee, his own people, and he's largely rejected. Um, the Samaritans are unorthodoxed. The Jews are orthodox. They got the right doctrine. They got it right. Samaritans get no sign. All they get is the words of Christ. The Jews get sign after sign. And the Samaritans respond with genuine faith in the Messiah. The Jews respond with a false faith in Messiah. So the, the, the contrast between these two stories is really um, astonishing. Jesus came to be the Savior of the world, not of the Jews only. That's how the story ended in chapter 4. He's the Savior of the world. But what the amazing thing is, is that when he comes to his own, his own do not receive him. Go back to chapter 1 with me, just to lay some groundwork. Chapter 1, verse 11. This is a theme that John is trying to unpack for us. He came to his own. Um, first meeting, his own creation in general, um, and people in general don't receive him, but specifically the Jews. Chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
He is received by those who are outcasts, the Samaritans. And he is cast out by those who are his own people. For the most part, Israel failed to respond correctly to Messiah. Um, a remnant believe, the disciples, um, but the most um, are hardened. They reject. Hold your hand here and go over to chapter 12. This is how the public ministry of Jesus ends. I just want you to see that um, this is uh, not isolated here to chapters 1 to 4. Um, John is making a point that he carries to the end of Jesus' ministry. The end of chapter 12, Jesus' public ministry comes to an end. From this point forward, it's only time with his disciples. It's over. Um, look at verse 37 of chapter 12. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he gives Isaiah 53.1. He's the suffering servant. Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Israel, for the most part, fails to get him. They, they fail to respond rightly to his signs. They, they, they miss it. And yet within this massive rejection of his people, some do believe. Some Jews do believe. Look at the rest of, of verse um, 12 in chapter 1. I told you to hold your finger there. So he came to his own people. His own did not receive him. Verse 12 but to all who received him. So the idea is nobody receives him, and yet some people receive him. Um, John says something very similar to this in chapter 3. Go over to chapter 3 at the very end, um, verse 32. Look what he says there. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Nobody does. Verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony. So some people do. Uh, receive his testimony. So, so John is, uses hyperbole. Nobody believes him. And yet those who believe him. Um, so some people do. So the question is, why, John, are you talking like that? Um, what are you trying to, to communicate? And I think he's trying to emphasize two things for us. And he actually really gives us theolo the theology of it up in verses 19 through 21 of John 3. So look up there. What is he doing? Why is he talking this way? Nobody believes him. And yet, for those who believe him, what is John after? I think John talks this way in order to highlight that the default response of man, especially the Jews who are the closest to God, you would think, is unbelief. That is the default response of man. He comes to his own, and his own did not receive him. That's the default setting of man to reject the light. So John says, the light comes, and people respond with rejection for everyone who does what is evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed that's the primary reason for unbelief why do people not believe christ john says here the fundamental reason for all unbelief everywhere is a desire to not be exposed by the light because we're evil we don't want to be exposed everyone responds that way is what John's point is. But some respond rightly. Whoever receives his testimony. Now, why does John say it like that? Um, I think the point is to highlight, yes, this is the default response of man, and yet some do respond. And any response, any positive response to Christ is owing exclusively to divine, sovereign grace. 
Nobody believed him, and yet for those who believed him, some people believed him. Why? The answer is grace. Look at the very end of that um, little section, verse 21 of chapter 3. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. Who does what is true? What does that mean? It's a person who's characterized by a devotion to the truth. They, they want to submit and obey and believe and receive the truth. Old Testament, New Testament. They come to light. Why? So that it may be clearly seen that his works, what works? The doing what is true, committed to what is true, have been carried out in God. God has done something to him. God has changed the heart. Use the word of the new, te- the, the, the new birth back in chapter 3. They've been born again. The spirit is blown and has given divine life. Enable them to believe and hear and receive the words of Christ. So no one believes him, and yet some believe him. And those who do, do so because God has done something, shown grace to them. That's exactly what we're going to see this morning. Uh, This is sort of the final story that John gives to sum up what he's been trying to communicate in these four chapters. Um, Jesus comes to his own, comes to the Jews, after being received rightly in Samaria, only to be misunderstood and dishonored by his people who should have gotten it right. And yet within this unbelief, some respond. And they respond correctly. And we're going to see why they do and how that happens and what that means. So before we dive in, um, I also just want to uh, bring your attention to how these four chapters are are laid out. We've been saying over and over that these four chapters in John are a unity. they, They belong together. They're the first section. And not only are the themes sort of consistent throughout, um, but it's very clear that it is a a unit. Look at the very end of John 4. John sort of gives us the key to this structure. He says, this was now the second sign. We're going to see Jesus do this sign this morning. This was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So remember, in chapter 2, he performs this sign in Cana. What was it? The changing of what? Water to wine, okay? And now he goes back to Judah and comes back to Cana again to do a second sign. And some people call this the Cana cycle. He begins at Cana, goes to Jerusalem, comes back to Cana, and does another sign. I think it's better to see it as two cycles, going from a tra- uh, travel, a journey, up to Cana to perform a sign, and he does that twice. Begins with John the Baptist, people believe in him. Goes up to Cana, forms a sign, and more disciples believe. And that happens two times. Water into wine, and then this, this story here. And you can see that in verse 54. This is the second, time, second sign Jesus did when he had come from Judah to Galilee. Um, he does that twice. And that's important to point out so that we can know how to study this, this passage. We, we are meant to compare and contrast it with the others in order to get the point that John is trying to unfold. So this morning we're going to finish this whole section out, chapters 1 through four. Jesus came to be the savior of the world, not of the Jews only. But the surprising thing is, is that he is rejected by and large. So let's dive in. Um, I've entitled this uh, whole story here, When the Messiah Comes to His Own. What should we expect? When the Messiah Comes to His Own, verses 43 to 54. And the point here is really to summarize some of John's main points about faith in his gospel. He's going to highlight the astonishing unbelief of the Jews. I mean, you would think they should get it. Of all people, they should get it. It's astonishing. They miss it. John's going to highlight the distinction between true and false faith. Remember, we've talked about that all through these four chapters, true versus false faith. What's the difference between the two? And he's going to highlight the way true faith grows. 
Remember that, that, that that's a consistent thing. We saw it last week. We're going to see it again today. True faith begins small, seed-like, and the evidence that it is true is that it perseveres. It grows the more light that it's exposed to it. Um, it perseveres in it. So you can see on your outline, uh, we've divided this, this uh, story into two sections. Uh, and we're going to begin here with... go. Um, Christ's return to Galilee is met with a dishonoring welcome. Look at verse 43. It says, And after two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So Jesus has just finished two days in Samaria at their request. Please stay with us. Please stay with us. They hear from him. They believe in him. Now Jesus picks up his journey, heads back to Galilee. And in verse 44, we are given an initially perplexing reason for his return. Look what it says. It says, after two days, he departs from there to Galilee. Why? Verse 44. For or because this is the reason. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet does not have honor in his own hometown. So why does he go back to Galilee? Because of his testimony. A prophet doesn't have honor in his own hometown. Now before we can really understand how, how is that a reason for his return, we need to understand uh, what he's talking about here. What, what does this mean, this little saying of his, a prophet does not have honor in his own hometown. Um, you can probably think to some of the other gospels. Um, they say something very similar. They say a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown. Um, and the point is generally the same. Um, the basic gist is that, generally speaking, in the flow of salvation history, God's prophets are rejected by those who are closest to them. Um, you think Elijah, Elisha. For the most part, they're rejected by those that they're from. They're received by the outsiders. They're received by the Gentiles. They're rejected by those closest. And Jesus is saying that um, he is the greatest prophet. And just as a prophet does not have honor in his own hometown, so also Jesus, being the greatest prophet, must also be rejected by those closest to him. Um, where is his hometown? In the other Gospels, his hometown is Nazareth. Um, here it doesn't mention Nazareth. It probably refers simply to the entire region of Galilee. So he's coming up to Galilee, and Jesus says that's his own hometown. So what is the essence of dishonor here? He says a, a prophet is not honored. What do you think? What is the essence of dishonor without looking at your outline? How do you honor a prophet? Believe his word. You believe his word. You take him seriously. You respond to what he declares. The way you dishonor a prophet is by ignoring, by belittling, by not paying attention to his word. And the essence of dishonor here is unbelief. You dishonor a prophet by not receiving his testimony. And Jesus has come as the greatest prophet of all, coming from the Father, bringing a message to man. And you dishonor Christ by not receiving his testimony. That's the point. And the next verses are going to now unpack this uh, failure in detail. But before we get there, let's think about this reason now. Christ saying, I'm going to Galilee because a prophet doesn't have honor in his own hometown. Because those who are closest to a prophet generally dishonor him by unbelief. 
This is Christ's expectation of dishonor. He returns to Galilee to those who would not honor him, to those who will not believe him. Um, so the question now for you, give us a uh, minute to discuss this. Why would Christ intentionally go to where he is dishonored, to where he is belittled, to where he is not taken seriously? What do you think? This is not in your outline. Um, just uh, something to chew on here. What do you think? This is the reason. He's going to Galilee because they're not going to honor him. They're not going to believe him. Wasn't there some sort of pattern where Christ would typically go to the Jews first mm -hmm. or an area where he would be rejected and then he would go to the more poor and, and lowly? Yep, it's excellent. Yeah, that's a pattern all through the New Testament. It's for the Jews first. That's their Messiah, even though they're going to reject him uh, and then the Gentiles. And that the amazing thing of the mystery of, of God, it's through the rejection of Messiah that the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Um, yeah. In that, along with that, uh, it's showing his um, going out and showing the heart Yep. So he's exposing them. He's, he's going there. They're, they're continuing in unbelief. They should have already responded to him. They're not. And he's going there to, to really do what he did to Nicodemus and say, you're not right with me. You're, you're still uh, not right with God. And he's going to, to expose them in their hardness. Um, yep. It's good. What else? Why would he go? He said, they're not going to honor me. That's why I'm going back there. Thoughts? That's confirmed the prophecy said he yeah. was rejected by me. It's exactly right. Isaiah 53. He's going so that he would be um, dishonored. That is what his mission is, to be dishonored, to be massively rejected by Israel and be the suffering Isaiah 53 servant. Mm -hmm. Yep. Isaiah 53 refers to him as what a dry root out of the ground, right? Yeah. Being ignored. Yep. That's right. It's good. So here are the reasons y'all hit most of them. In order to be dishonored in fulfillment of God's word, Isaiah 53, to confront and expose their unbelief so that they would not be deceived, so he would show them who they really are. And then to reap a harvest from among them. Remember what Jesus had just said, the harvest has begun. It's begun among the Jews and Gentiles. Because he's going there, and though they're going to reject as a, as a whole, there's going to be a remnant, and there's going to be a few, as we're going to see in this, in this man. He's going to reap that harvest. Um, so that's why he returns to Galilee. Um, he has not been honored. He will not be honored. That's what happens. But now look at verse 45, the Galilean's response to his return. It says, so, or therefore, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen the signs that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So here the Galileans respond to his return. They, they welcome him. This is the hospitality word group in the, in the New Testament. They, they, they gladly receive him, very similar to what the Samaritans did. Please come stay with us. They, 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 they eagerly um, welcome him into their town. They urge him to remain with them. Now, you're probably thinking, well, Michael, that sounds the exact opposite of what Jesus said would happen. You said, he said they're going to be dishonored, but now they're, they're, they're welcoming him. Um, what's going on here? That doesn't sound like verse 44. He says a prophet does not have honor, but when he comes, they welcome him. So what's going on? Well, we have to finish the verse. Their hospitable action is exposed 
by their sinister motivation. Why did they welcome him? What does it say? They welcomed him, what? Having seen, or because they saw what he did. They saw the signs that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too went to the feast. This verse points us back to the crowd in chapter 2, verse 23. If you were with us when we taught through that, there is something significantly wrong with the faith of the crowd there. Turn back with me. Chapter 2, verse 23. John is intentionally connecting us back there um, to raise warning flags to help us see these people in the same light as chapter 2, verse 23. Um, there, people are responding to Jesus and his signs. He's doing more signs in Jerusalem. People are flocking to him with faith. But there's something very wrong with their faith. It says many believed in him, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. That's a play on words. It's like they believed him, but he didn't believe them. He's not giving himself in response to their faith. There's something very wrong with their faith. What is it? How does Jesus know? Look at the very end. It says he doesn't need anyone to bear witness about man because he knows what is in man. He can see through their false faith to their hearts what's going on. So what's wrong with their faith? Well, look at the connection between verse 25 and verse 1. He knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. In other words, Nicodemus is a case in point example of the crowd. What is wrong with the crowd in verses 23 to 25? These people are coming to Jesus. They're willing to confess Jesus has come from God. They're willing to affirm the supernatural in Jesus. They like his signs. He is just the kind of Messiah that they would like until he begins speaking and exposing their need for the new birth, exposing that they don't have it in their Jewishness. They need a purification that only he could provide. They need the Holy Spirit that only he could provide. They're not okay in themselves. They will not enter the kingdom apart from faith in him. They like him until that point. In other words, the signs that they see they, they, they failed to look beyond the signs. The signs were meant to lead them beyond the signs to faith in his word, to what he declared, to receiving what he had come to provide. And they failed to do that. They were just interested in the signs. The signs were the end goal. That's all they cared about. Our passage is intentionally connecting these people here back to chapter 2, verse 23. They have faith in Jesus, but it's faith in him as a sign worker. That's it. They love his power. Um, they welcome him. They're eager. They're excited. And they dishonor him. Why? Because they failed to be led by the signs to look beyond the signs to the words of Jesus. So really, the, the signs had two purposes. It was to cause them to pay attention. Hey, someone here is here that, that, that is something much more than typical man. Pay attention to him. Listen to him. Listen to his words. And the signs were meant to illustrate. Remember, all the signs of John are, are very illustrative. They're, they're symbols of the kind of eternal life that Jesus came to provide. But the crowds failed to see that. They failed to look beyond the signs to see exactly what they were teaching about Jesus. Faith must go beyond them to respond to the words of Christ. You know, you know Mike, real yeah. quick, uh, the, uh, it had been over 400 years. Yeah. Since they had actually, you know, this was so new to them. Yep. There was no, they hadn't been sensitized to anything, uh, you know, just, you know, a prophet. 
Yeah. Uh, speaking <clears throat> so this all they had John. And they, you know, John, and, John, yeah. John, and then right there. Yep. That's it. The 400 years. It is. Yep. And, um, yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Um, so all this time, they, they, they uh, one of the things the Gospel of John's doing is showing that how you respond to Jesus, Jesus really evidences your faith in the Old Testament. People that were really expecting him, truly trusting the Old Testament, they responded when he came on the uh, on the scene. Um, so Jesus comes to his own, and uh, for the most part, they dishonor him by welcoming him. By welcoming him, not as he really is. So... Say it another way. Your motivation for coming to Jesus matters. I'm assuming I'm talking to all believers this morning. Um, it's so helpful to think through the nature of true versus false faith. Not only as we just examine our lives, but as we, as we help disciple one another, counsel one another, share the gospel with one another. Your motivation for Christ matters. You do not honor Jesus simply by believing him for any reason. That's what John is saying here. Many people want Jesus, but they don't want his words. The point here is that any faith in Jesus, other than a faith that depends on him and receives him as the kind of Messiah that he came to be in connection with his words, dishonors him. It does not honor him. That's all the people cared about was their physical needs um, and the kind of Messiah that could provide those. Which really leads to the next point here. Um, <clears throat> number two, Christ's return to Cana is met with a mixed reception. Verses 46 to 54. Notice verse 46 begins with another therefore. It says, so or therefore, since the Galileans failed to respond to him correctly, therefore, he goes even deeper into Galilee to Cana, where he had done the first sign. He comes to the Galileans who had witnessed his signs in Jerusalem, they failed to respond. And now he goes to Cana, where he did his first sign. And they'll fail to respond rightly as well. And uh, if you remember back to the story of changing water into wine, the only people that knew that sign took place was who? You remember? Just the servants who delivered the wine, right? They're the only people that realize something miraculous has taken place. But the point here is that word certainly spread. People all over the place heard about it and knew about it. We're going to see an example of that in this official that comes to Jesus. Um, but the first thing I want to point out here is that when he comes to Canaan, verse 46, is the, the silence is shocking. Verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. Nothing. No response. In other words, in John, having seen the signs of Christ, if you're going to respond rightly, you're going to respond as the Samaritans, who never got a sign. But they said, he's a prophet, and he's more than a prophet. They flocked to his words. They, they begged him to stay with them, to teach them. None of that here. Silence. And in fact, the only person we hear about is not a person from Cana at all. It's a person from Capernaum. Um, Capernaum was a, a, a village right along the Sea of Galilee, um, a good journey, about 16 miles, a day's journey away. And that's where this uh, official comes from. And in this official, we're going to see the faith of the official progresses from false faith to true faith. And that's sort of how John wants to wrap up this section of his gospel, showing, yeah, we've just seen the deficiencies of false faith, but, but what is needed now? How does one progress now from false to true faith? And that's what this man is going to be used to illustrate 
In the midst of the failure of the Jews, one responds. He comes to Jesus from Capernaum um, to seek his help. Now, um, who is this guy? It says an official. Um, in Capernaum, there is an official. The word is a basilikas. It's a person who belonged to the king. He was employed in the king's service. He was an official probably of uh, Herod, uh, Antipas, who ruled in Galilee at that time. And upon hearing that Jesus arrives in Cana, he travels to find him. Um, so in other words, this man knows about Jesus. He's heard about Jesus, whether it's the stories of the water into wine or the signs that he had done in Jerusalem. But either way, he hears that Jesus is coming. He knows about him, and he comes seeking his help. And the point is that initially, this man is no different from the rest. He's no different from the rest of the crowd that dishonors Christ. Yet by God's grace to him in this story, he's going to become a true disciple. So first, look at his faith was like the crowds. The first part here, 46 to 47. It says, In Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to meet him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So this man is already familiar with Jesus and his signs. He hears that Jesus comes and so and goes to find him in order to heal his son. Now, if my child was at the point of death, and if your child was at the point of death, I'm sure you would probably do the same thing. Um, Jesus on earth, he can heal him. He's going to seek him out. So we can certainly empathize with this man, but the point here is that he, along with the rest of Galilee for the most part, was not moved by Jesus' sign to seek his message, to hear his word. They just were concerned with their physical well-being. So think forward to John 6. He feeds the 5,000, multitude of bread. What do the people want the next day? Jesus comes now to explain the sign, to give them the word, the real meaning of the sign. They just want breakfast. They just want their physical needs to be taken care of. They're not interested in his words. And that's exactly what's going on here. And Jesus really confirms this by the, by the next verses here, verses 48 to 50. He rebukes unbelief and challenges faith. Verse 48, Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Notice Jesus is saying to him, he's speaking directly to this official, but what does he say? He says, except you all, plural, except you all, all you Galileans, except you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So he's speaking to this man, but he's rebuking this man on behalf of all the Galileans for their failure. In other words, this man was a representative of the whole of Galilee who did not believe in Jesus rightly. Now, it's important to point out that they are not demanding signs from Jesus as a basis for faith. So you think of other Gospels. People say, okay, Jesus, we'll believe in you if you give us a sign, right? Um, back in chapter 2, they say, what authority do you have to cleanse the temple? Give us a sign, right? That's not what's going on here. They're, they're, they're not saying, we'll believe if you give us a sign. What are they doing? They're just simply unconcerned about Jesus' Uh, word and work, they just want more signs for their own physical benefit. Um, that's Jesus' point here. Except you see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. You're never going to get beyond signs and wonders um, to true faith. You're only concerned with your physical well-being. So this official is, is an example of the response to Jesus by the general population. 
he does not respond to Jesus' rebuke. Look what, what happens next here. Um, verse 49, he simply says, Sir, come down before my child dies. Um, he doesn't think much about what Jesus has just said. Uh, he just knows he's desperate. He, he, he needs Jesus' help or his child's going to die. But I think the words that Jesus speaks here prepare him um, and, and are important for when he does see the sign, he's not taught to look beyond it to Christ. So we'll come back to that in a minute. Now verse um, 50. Jesus is very compassionate even for those who fail to believe him, even with those who dishonor him. And so he responds to this father by promising that his child will live. Look at verse 50. Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. He gives him a promise. Um, this is not the way the father asked, and this is very important. The father said, come with me, come down with me to Capernaum and heal him. Jesus does not give him as he asked. He said, come with me, do it so I can see it. Jesus does what? He says, go, your son will live. Now, why? What's going on here? Why doesn't Jesus do it the way the man asked? I think it's in order to challenge this man's faith, right? He's teaching him to reckon with the power and reliability of Christ's word. This man had failed to respond to the words of, to the signs of Christ by faith. Remember? He's had the signs. He's not been interested in the word of Christ. Now Christ is putting him in a position where he must reckon with the word of Christ. He says, I'm going to give you a sign, but first you have to learn about how important and central my word is. You have to reckon with my word. And that's all he gives him. That's all this man has. Before this man can enjoy the sign, he must go forth by faith in the word of Christ. In other words, Jesus forces this man to deal with whether he really believes what Jesus declares or not. Will he continue to think of Christ only as a sign worker? Or will he come to terms with the importance of Christ's words? That's what Jesus is doing. He's put him, putting him in a position now where he's going to be prepared to come to true faith. He forces him to reckon with the nature of Christ's words. And so in verse 50, he responds with faith in Jesus' words. It says, the man believed, look, in the word which Jesus spoke to him. Sometimes faith is directed to Christ in general. Other times it's directed to his word as it is here this is an essential ingredient in true faith. It's directed to the word of Christ. It must reckon with Christ's words. So think about all that he is believing here. Jesus says, go, your son lives, and the man goes. In other words, he believes him. It says he believed him, and he went. So think about all that's contained in that faith. To turn around, Jesus says this, turn around and start going. What does that mean you believe? Think about all that would be involved there. He would have to believe that Jesus can do this miracle from that great of a distance. He has to believe that Jesus, by his very word, is able to bring life into existence as God himself. He would have to believe that his words are truthful, reliable, trustworthy. All these are elements in the, in the beginnings of true faith. And he believes them. He takes them at his word, and he goes. And now look at the very end here, verses 51 to 54, his faith now matures. His faith is small, he's having to reckon with the word of Christ, and he believes him and he goes. Um, and on his journey back home, he's met by his servants. Let's read it, verse 51. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. <clears throat> and the man 
knew it. Obviously, he believed Jesus, but he asked this to confirm it. He asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that this was the hour that Jesus said to him, your son will live. And look at this. And he himself believed. That's the second time. John does this all the time. They believed, and then they believed. They believed, and then they believed. He believed Jesus with a seed-like faith, and now he's led to believe. The idea is that a wholehearted belief and commitment to what? To Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ for who he really is. He responds with an even greater, deeper faith in him. Not only to the word of Christ at the beginning, but to Jesus Himself. In other words, the sign was mixed with faith, and he's now led to look beyond the sign to who? To him, to Christ. That is what signs are supposed to do. <clears throat> so you say, Michael, well, what's the point? There's a couple things. I, I think the, as I was going through it, just thinking, how can I summarize? What's the main point that John's trying to get across? I would say it's the importance and priority of Christ's word and faith in it over and above signs. The purpose of signs are meant to point people beyond the signs to the word of Christ. Signs are important. They're helpful, even in the Gospel of John. But if they do not come in contact with the heart of faith, true faith, dependence on the word of God in the Old Testament and responding rightly to Christ, they will miss the sign. They will abuse the sign. After his first sign in Cana, people respond um, with unbelief, but his, his disciples do what? They believe, right? They believe with a truer, deeper faith. And the same thing happens here. Put it this way. This man is led by Jesus to focus on his words and depend upon them as fully reliable. And then once the sign happens and his faith is confirmed, where do you think his, his focus went? Do you think his focus now went to more signs? No. Where does his focus go? Back to the reliability of the word of Christ. I began trusting the word of Christ. It's been confirmed. Now I'm, where else am I going to go? Of course I'm going to trust him. He's reliable. He's powerful. He's God himself. And he's going to look back to, to Christ. It's the priority of Christ's word and faith. Without it, faith is empty. Signs of the gospel are meant to call people to look to Christ and pay attention to his word and, and receive the eternal life that he came to, to offer one more thing to point out is that this is a sign. Remember, signs are illustrative. They're meant to illustrate the kind of eternal life that Jesus came to provide. Three times in this passage, the phrase is used, your son will live, your son will live, your son will live. In other words, this man is an illustration for us of what it looks like to become a believer. You come to Christ in desperate faith. He came to Christ in desperation for the physical life of his son. Jesus is the source of eternal life. That means the new birth, cleansed nature, freedom from sin, transformation, and then eternal life in the age to come. And the point is that you come to Christ with the same desperation as this man, but for eternal life. And the beautiful thing is, how does he get it? How does this man receive life for his son? What is it? Easy, simple, reliance, dependence on the word of Christ. It's amazing how simple it is in John. It's not meant to belittle it. As you can see, this is not superficial Christianity. This is not decision Christianity in John. There's true versus false faith. That doesn't mean faith is anything more than a simple reliance, receiving a desperation. I have no hope except Christ alone. And I depend there. I rest there. 
As the Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, said whoever looks to him, believes in him. His only hope depends on him. He'll have eternal life. That's what's going on in this passage. And that's what this man comes to find out. It's a beautiful conclusion to um, these four chapters in John. Um, warning John's readers that there is true versus false faith. And true faith comes to Christ because of his word. Um, receives Christ for what he's come to offer. And it depends on him for eternal life. Um, knowing that one is undone without him. So... Um, we have one minute till we go. Any questions, comments on this uh, on this passage here? The one thing, uh, <clears throat> verse fifty-three yeah. says, "Your son lives." And he himself believed yeah. and his whole household. His household, so, yeah. Spread. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that, that's another one of the things John's been emphasizing. This uh, testifying, right? People come that believe. What's the first thing true disciples do? They testify <laughs> about it. They proclaim him. They share him. And his, his family comes. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's good work. What else? Anything? Any other thoughts? <clears throat> Alrighty. Well, we will um, not be here next week for Sunday school. Um, so uh, come to the main service still. And then pick up in the new year. We will be in John 5. And uh, I know we've gone a little bit slower through John 4. Um, but hopefully in the rest of John, we'll, we'll put the accelerator down a little bit more. Um, John 4 is just so packed. It's just sort of... Uh, one of the first sections is just packed full of stuff. Um, I'm sure the rest is as well, but we'll try to pick up the pace. So, all right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and I ask that you would um, now cause it to bear fruit. Um, help us to um, believe it and apply it to um, where we need to apply it in our lives. Um, maybe that's simply um, being more faithful disciples, having come to terms with your word, not proclaiming it, sharing it with those around us. Even if people will reject it, they will reject it. And yet, Lord, we depend on your spirit to work and to give life. Father, we come to the service ahead and ask that you would soften our hearts, cause us to hear you, respond to you, worship you in spirit and in truth. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.